Hello, amazing listeners. This is a special edition of Day 2 Cloud. We're calling Cube Conversations. I spent two days in the Windy City attending KubeCon, Cloud Native Con, and I had the opportunity to speak to a wide array of vendors and open source maintainers about what's going on in the cloud native ecosystem. From those conversations, I picked up on some major themes, specifically platform engineering and security. This is part two of a two-part episode that is focused on platform engineering and building platforms for engineers. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you're missing out on some excellent chats with folks from HashiCorp, Portworks, and Vitesse. We'll start this half talking to Billy Thompson, Manager of Solutions Engineering at Akamai, about how to build a platform customers actually like and how Helpdesk taught Billy the soft skills he needed to be successful. Joining me now for the Day 2 Cloud Cube Conversations is Billy Thompson, a Solutions Engineering Manager at Akamai, to talk about all things cloud architecture and platform engineering. Billy, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. Can you first give the audience a little background about yourself and how you landed at Akamai? Right on. Well, first off, thank you for having me. My pleasure. I started at Linode. I was fresh out of school with an IT degree. And I refused to get involved with anything Windows. <laughs> I very specifically was only going to have a career working with Linux. And I said, I'll wait as long as it takes. All right. Linode came onto the radar. I thought, wow, a Linux cloud hosting company. Can't get much more Linux than that. Right there in the name. I updated my resume on the spot. I got an interview, I got hired, I started out in support, I worked my way up to professional services, and then on up to solutions engineering, and now solutions engineering manager. And then I also consider myself an open source consultant, and that's what I come out to a lot of these shows to help do. Okay, so what does it mean to be a solutions engineer? Because I know there's a lot of different titles out there, and things can get fuzzy. So to you, what, what did solution engineering entail? So what it entails is... <laughs> Partially what I do. Typically, what I define as solutions engineering, this is the pre-sales conversations where a prospect customer is saying, how do I do this on your platform? A solutions engineer understands the business case. They understand the problem that they are trying to solve mm. that they could not solve where else they are. And then they have the technical acumen to put together a reference architecture and some prescriptive guidance on how to build it on the platform. Now, from that point, if it comes to somebody who actually puts their hands on the keyboard to build that environment, be it a proof of concept or the actual production environment that data will be migrated into, that would fall in the hands of the technical solution architects. Now, at some companies, those are all kind of one thing. And in some ways, it is that on the compute side of the house. In some ways, it is not. I have a foot in both of those worlds. I see. So you could potentially be hands-on keyboard, but typically the solutions engineer works in the pre-sales capacity. Yes. Now, I'm curious because I did consulting for a decent amount of time at a reseller, so I'm familiar with this pre-sales and then post-sales implementation. What do you do to ensure to close the loop between 
the folks who are developing the architectures and those who actually have to implement it. Because if there's a disconnect there, you can get architectures that are almost impossible to implement as designed. Well, you have to build the architecture first. You have to put it through a user acceptance testing phase. And then when all the boxes are checked, you have to work very, very tightly with the customer. So to close that loop just means that everyone is involved in communication. There isn't like a middle person in between the customer and the solution architects, right? We're all gonna be in the same meetings, the same conversation, and we're all doing the cutover together. From the customer point of view, you could consider us a member of your organization's team versus mm. ours throughout that process. Gotcha, okay. So that needs to be that feedback back to the solutions architect about what was designed and how well it's functioning during that user acceptance testing. And that's been a big differentiator between our platform and similar companies, and this gets pointed out and appreciated that they can talk to actual humans <laughs> and the ones who are actually doing the work and helping them through that process. There isn't this chain of people that it has to get escalated through. You know, If this one solutions architect was the database subject matter expert who's putting something together, they can connect with that person directly. Let's remove the barriers and let's be enabling because what this comes down to is their success is our success. Right. And some people use that term in a vacuum, but some of us use it very literally because if they are enabled, if they can succeed, then they can grow on the platform, they can grow on our platform. Everybody wins. We're a family. More consumption means you know better for Linode as well. So that philosophy makes sense. It's one of those things that gets lost a little bit in the hyperscaler world where they're dealing with such volume and numbers, it is difficult to add that personal touch. Though at the same time, as Linode becomes more successful and is now you're part of Akamai, how do you keep that personal touch with customers as you scale as a company? Well, from my opinion, and I don't have the perspective of a hyperscaler. <laughs> Few do. But from my perspective, I don't think it's that hard to keep that touch if that is a core part of your ethos. So when you look at the Linode story, the core values was a very customer support first model, right? And then we'll build out all the other layers after that. But if there's one thing that has to be done really well and right from the start, it is that good customer support, that human touch, that human element. And as the company scales, as we start to hire remotely, we make sure that we sustain that and maintain that, and it, with any type of scale, there are new challenges to overcome. This is no different, you overcome those challenges. So keeping that as a core part of your ethos and that being part of your main value prop, if that's up front, I don't think it's that hard. Very true. Now, one of the terms I keep hearing during KubeCon is platform engineering. And in the case of Linode, you were literally building a platform for others to use. So you might have a unique perspective on what it means to practice platform engineering. What are your thoughts around the rise of the term? So to me, platform engineering is simply taking DevOps principles and applying them. It's putting them to work in some way, right? And so what I've heard a lot of over the past year is this question of, is DevOps dead? And that's <laughs> yeah. because of the rise of platform engineering. From my perspective, platform engineering and things like SRE or GitOps is living proof that DevOps is alive and well because DevOps is just the parent set of principles and these are the children that are going through and building the next generation. Mm -hmm. So platform engineering comes along. So with DevOps, and you have DevOps professionals, you have DevOps engineers. 
Sure. And in some companies, that is the glue between developers and ops. And in other ones, there's still a disconnect. So why is that? For any sort of DevOps engineers, you want to make your own job easier. If you're building automation, why are you not going to do that for yourself and make your own process less manual? And here comes platform engineering. And oh, great. Now we can also spread that around to other parts of the company so developers can just take our same automation pipelines and streamline everything they're doing. Everyone's happy. I really like that. I like that perspective on it because I know there were especially a few companies out there, I won't call out any names, that were promoting the DevOps is dead idea. Uh, I think in part just to spark a conversation and it certainly did that and I think the overwhelming majority of people were like, no, it's not dead. It's literally alive and well in the world of platform engineering. So I appreciate that perspective. Since you were part of building up this platform, you mentioned you started at the help desk level. And I also started on help desk in my tech career at a retail help desk, which was a unique kind of position where you were dealing with people who were not technical in any way. How do you think the things you learned being on help desk informed the rest of your career in terms of like listening, troubleshooting, et cetera? So when I started, the reason that I applied for the support role instead of something beyond that was because I thought it was something I was overqualified for. I had already been using Linux for 10 years, usually in my courses at school. Right. I was the more knowledgeable one in the room. So instead of going for something where maybe I could have gotten in, but I didn't have the experience as people, I thought, well, this will be easy for me. And in that aspect, it was. I went for the hardest, most difficult technical troubleshooting tickets I could find. I cherry-picked them out of the queue, mm -hmm. and I loved diving in and solving those problems. What I was not good at is soft skills. Ah. That was my learning curve. I had to learn how to be a human in the way I write my responses because the way I wrote was just documentation, man pages. Right. And so the soft skills I have now and then the ability to be a good listener and especially when I'm talking to clients and they're trying to share with me their vision and how things are going and for me to understand the goals they're trying to set without them upfront telling me what those are and then being able to dig through that and in my brain pick out the right technical stack for them. I have all of that to thank from the support experience. I had a very similar progression where I'd actually worked retail for a number of years. So I actually built up that skill set just working retail in general. So when I went to go work retail help desk, I understood what the cashiers were going through that were calling me up on the phone, that they had an angry person trying to return something and that register just needed to work. And having those soft skills really did benefit the rest of my career. I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of the need for those soft skills when you're trying to build out a platform engineering practice. It's going to be being a good listener and really absorbing the pains that other people have. Because in every situation, there's some sort of pain point that you're trying to solve. If you're doing platform engineering, nobody is doing it because it's what the cool kids are talking about. <laughs> At least hopefully not. If you are, then you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> right. You're doing it because you have a problem that you're trying to solve. You're slowed down. There's a bottleneck. Somewhere you cannot innovate as fast as you want to innovate. And this seems like a good solution. But there are many ways to peel an orange. 
I'm vegan, so I'm going to be a little friendlier <laughs> with my animal references. Fair enough. <laughs> and the right way is going to depend on the boundaries of the organization, what communication is like, how teams work together. So being a good communicator within all of that is completely essential to glue it all together, to build the right platform that your different teams are going to use. The one thing I started to understand when I began consulting was I needed to bring empathy to the table when I was working with a client because my initial way was to barge in and go, everything you're doing is wrong and here's the way you should be doing it. And that's absolutely the wrong way to approach developing a solution or a platform for anyone. You have to shut up and listen and understand their motivations because there's probably a really good reason they did it that way the first time. I won't say it was a technically good reason, but a good reason in their organization they did it that way. Understanding that reason is going to help you develop a new solution that technically works better, but also still satisfies that requirement. Yeah, and there is a very big difference between this is the wrong way to do it and this is the way I like to do it. <laughs> and it gets very, very dangerous when the way I like to do it is being projected as you're doing it wrong. You need to do it the way I like to do it. Right. So even some of the most senior level developers I know will talk about this when it comes to things like code review for a commit. When people are going through, the code is not wrong. It does what it says it does. But when you get into this debate of no, it's wrong because it's not exactly the style, that can really send you backwards. Right. It causes conflict. It's just not productive. So even just having awareness of that much, I think goes a long way here. Yes, it's getting into those bike shedding arguments that are not useful for anyone and don't actually accelerate the development of something. Very interesting. Well, if folks want to engage more with you, what's a good place to find you and get more thoughts around platform engineering or anything else that you wanted to share? Please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. And I'm always thirsty for feedback, good or bad. I want it. If you have questions, if you got things you want to challenge me on, I'm always for it. That's awesome. Well, Billy, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks again for having me. You bet. The next guest is Shannon Williams, the co-founder of Acorn Labs. It's an open source project that Ethan actually flagged to me at the beginning of 2023, but we never quite had the chance to dig into it. Well, now we do. Joining me now for the Day 2 Cloud Cube conversations is Shannon Williams, the co-founder and president of Acorn Labs. And he's here to talk a little bit about building a cloud platform and some fresh news they've released during the conference. Shannon, thank you so much for joining the show today. Why don't you tell the good folks a little bit about Acorn Labs? Yeah, thanks so much for having us. I'm really excited to be here. This conference is so exciting because you get here and everybody's trying to really kind of understand what you do when you're a new company like Acorn. Right. We've been explaining it. Acorn is... An open source project at its core, we have a project called Acorn Runtime that runs on top of Kubernetes. It allows people to abstract away a lot of the complexity and provide an application development experience that's more cloud native. It really feels a lot like Docker to users, so it creates a really easy way to consume Kubernetes. But at the same time, it allows the platform engineers to define policies and set controls. And Acorn's been around now for about a year. We released it last fall. And this year, we're rolling out a cloud. So we rolled out Acorn IO, which is our cloud platform. Um, okay. We rolled that out two weeks ago. And it's it's basically an implementation of Acorn. So as we've been building up Acorn, it's been in beta for the last year. We've been you know, trying to think about how to expose it to more people. And one of the things we realized was, you know, you really see the power of it when it's connected to AWS or to a cloud platform. And you can 
provision clusters really quickly. You can connect to things like databases and storage and, and start to build applications. And so that's what we've been working on and we just got that out. So it's been really exciting. We've gotten a lot of feedback <laughs> from it. It's been kind of that now we're in beta on that project and you know we've just had hundreds and hundreds of people signing up and trying it. So it's exciting. We're really having a good time. Yeah. I think when you came out of Stealth or, or sort of published the repository on GitHub, my co-host, Ethan Banks, may have flagged Acorn and said, we should get these folks on the podcast at some point. And uh, Kismet, here you are. <laughs> yeah, it's it's exciting to be here. It's been a really fun time. I mean, our team has been together for a long time. This is our third company as, okay. a, as a group. So before this, we started Rancher. And before that, we started a company called Cloud.com. And so we've been which built CloudStack and we did OpenStack back in the early days. So we spent a lot of time, you know, really almost since 2008, working together on you know sort of different layers of the infrastructure platform. And so with Acorn, it's kind of the first time we've moved above the infrastructure where we're really just using Kubernetes to consume resources and dealing now with how do you expose Kubernetes to people in a way that they really want to work with it? They get all the value out of it. They stay within you know safe parameters that the platform teams need them to be in, but they can just do a lot more. And Acorn's really, that's where we kind of have focused is how do you get a lot more value out of Kubernetes if you're an engineering team, if you're an application development team? And it, it really comes from connecting it to external cloud services, starting to take advantage of all the cool things that Kubernetes can do under the cover, but put those really close to the surface. And that's where the design of Acorn tries to bring out. Okay, so lowering the, the friction of adopting Kubernetes, making it a little a more streamlined for them to use. Does that factor into another big concept or a big theme that I've been hearing over the course of the conference is platform engineering and the rise of platform engineering. So how do you think about platform engineering when you're working with Acorn? For so long, we've thought about operations as kind of, at least for most of my career, since the dawn of VMware, back mm -hmm. when I kind of came out of college, so much of it has been about how to take physical infrastructure and virtualize it and deliver it in a more consistent way. And we right. did that with virtualization, we did it with cloud, we've done it with Kubernetes, and we've kind of taken that road almost as far as we can. And now we've hit this point where, you know, we can get the same APIs to control infrastructure pretty much anywhere on our data centers, in the cloud. We can do really incredible, powerful things with those things. We can monitor them and restart them, and we can scale them up, scale them down, scale them to zero. We can do so much at the infrastructure level. But what we're finding is that, you know, application teams aren't really using all of that. We saw that at Rancher. We saw that people would adopt Rancher. They would deploy Kubernetes. They would start to see it scaling up. And about 30% of their teams would just dive in. They would love it. They would, they would become cloud native. But 60, 70% of the teams just kind of push back and we're like, no, we don't need this. <laughs> like we're still writing jar files. We don't, you know, that's not what we want. And even after people kind of adopted it, one of the things we started to see was that the DevOps function just kept growing. It was like there was never enough DevOps engineers. We were just constantly looking for them because what we had done is we had built this amazing platform in Kubernetes that's quite robust and offers really deep functional benefits for running applications, but the interface to it was really complicated. It just really didn't live in the world that developers and application teams worked in. And so we were filling that gap with people, and then we started filling that gap with process. And now we're calling that platform engineering, but it's fundamentally <laughs> the same thing. We have this big gap between the, the system, almost the kernel level capabilities of Kubernetes and what application teams are actually doing every day, how they're connecting to services and databases and you know, writing code and trying to push out what they're doing quicker and faster. And so it's really funny. I think it's almost like one of those things where if you've been around a while, you can kind of almost see 
a cycle. Like the whole point of cloud when it first came out was, oh, what if we could make it easier to get a hold of VMs and, and right. consume resources better? And, and then the whole point of Docker when it came out was like, oh, what if we just made it really easy for you to package up anything and run it locally on your machine? And then, you know, we kind of were heading in this way where Docker was like very, very developer friendly it still is like every developer uses docker every day on their laptops most of them do that's what big d docker really leaned into eventually was oh our our niche where we need to exist is at the desktop helping developers exactly and that's why you know you get to most people docker compose is something they do know they actually know how to talk docker compose they can write that up build up locally you know multi-nodal apps and multi-service apps and then you get to kubernetes it's like oh we better give this here are our containers. Here's what we need. You guys go figure it out. <laughs> throw and, it over the wall. And they throw it too. And so we're like, wow, we, we went all the way back around. And <laughs> we really you're like, oh, what if, you know, if Kubernetes had been, you know, kind of closer and Docker and Kubernetes hadn't been competing so much in the early days where they were, you know, really competing for the standardization of what the orchestration would be for containers. Yeah. You wonder if we might not have come up with something that was, you know, more developer friendly. And, but we didn't. And what we got now is this Kubernetes thing that is incredibly well built and quite reliable. And from my perspective, one of the best platforms we've ever built, but it just doesn't really work great for most app teams. It's, it's just not written in their language. And so that's what we've been trying to figure out is how to do that. And I think platform engineering has been trying to come up with solutions for that, but they've been approaching it for the most part with process. They've been approaching it by saying, oh, let's streamline your CI, let's build portals. And, and our belief is that a runtime is actually easier. Like, let's consume Kubernetes. Let's just build a UI on top of it that gives developers and their teams what they need. And I mean, a UI in sense of a, a CLI, a UI, a process, the whole thing. Let's start with their requirements and build against Kubernetes capabilities. And that's the approach we've tried to take. Reminds me of the early days of computing where it was all hobbyists. And the only real way to interact with the computer, I mean, initially it was like flipping switches or punching a card, right? But even once we had an interface, a terminal, Interacting with the computer was very text-based. It had esoteric commands. People didn't really understand. You didn't see widespread adoption of computing until someone finally put a nice graphical UI on there that was intuitive and easy to use. And, you know, whether you want to put that at the feet of Apple with their, like, 2GS and that era or with Windows 3.1.1, you took all these really complex technical things and you hid that behind something that was user-friendly and relatively easy to use. And now, like, instead of the whiz kids who want to bang things out at the command line, you had, you know, your mom or your dad or whatever is now able to use a computer as well. And we've just continued on that route in the consumer side of things. I, I think I could draw a pretty straight analogy to that's what happened with Kubernetes. We started with a very complicated interface and now we're seeing maybe we need to simplify it and make it friendlier. Or just make it specific to the use cases, right? I think if we understand, like if we're trying to program a relatively complex infrastructure type of stuff, Kubernetes is really good for that too. It's just not what most app teams are using it for. And so <laughs> right. it's understanding, you know, kind of horses for courses. The the use case for, for most teams is not necessarily the, the most complicated thing, but they still need to fit inside the goals of the IT organization, which cares about security and cares about process and cares about who did this, what is it costing us, FinOps and all of the rest of it. So, you know, like always, the devil starts to get into the details and that's kind of what's happened with cloud too, right? If you think about AWS, I mean, when I I first used AWS, and I'm not particularly, I'm not an engineer, but I found it quite delightful and easy to use. Today, for me to use AWS, I have to grab one of my buddies. I'm like, okay, I cannot figure out IAM <laughs> policies to save my life. Like, I'm completely lost. I can't do anything here. And so we've enterprised 
the cloud. We've enterprised Kubernetes. We've enterprised everything. And enterprising it is great because we have to do that stuff to measure costs, to control costs, to make sure we do it securely, to control process. But then we can't then just toss all that enterprise stuff over to our application development teams and say, like, good luck. Yeah. Why didn't you learn this? Why haven't you embraced this? <laughs> it's like, well, I'm trying to learn React. Like, I'm trying to build better front ends. I'm trying to build apps that are going to delight our customers. Why are you making this so damn complicated? I'm right. Like, My app's not that complicated. So I think we're in that world right now where, you know, the adoption curve, we've kind of gotten to the point where on the positive side, we've standardized. There's, you know, broad adoption of Kubernetes. It's a really good platform. Mm-hmm. And we've standardized in a lot of ways on tooling. It, it, sometimes it feels like the, the pace of innovation is even slowing down, that we're, we've kind of reached this point where most of the tools that we're using today were, are very similar to what we were using five years ago. Yeah. That the last five years have been less innovative than maybe the five years before that. Certainly maturing. Yeah. And less new solutions where you're like, oh, that is really a game changer for what I was trying to do before to fill the, a really big gap, you know? Right. You know, sometimes I feel like Vault was the last thing I saw. I was like, oh, that's an obvious gap that really needs to be filled, and it really got filled. <laughs> right. And so I think we're kind of in this really interesting spot where now it's like, okay, how do we take technology and make it consumable? You know, we've got working systems. Let's just focus on our users, focus on their experience. And that's what we're trying to do with Acorn. Okay. And I was going to ask you how Acorn fits into all that, but you tied it up so nicely. <laughs> so I understand you have some new announcements that came out uh, during the conference. Uh, what, what's the big thing that you announced uh, around Acorn? Well, the fun thing is really this new cloud. I mean, we've built a public cloud, I guess, for the first time, which for a bunch of guys who tend to work you know, behind the scenes building infrastructure stuff is really a bit of a dream come true. We've been working on how to take Acorn and just make it available to anybody wherever they work. And so our, our first thought was, let's just you know put it in front of AWS. And so we built an Acorn experience on top of AWS. Then we decided to you know create this sort of free tier of consumption, which we call it standard because it's kind of what we expect most people to use. And our model was GitHub. We were like, well, you know, if you think of GitHub, what, one of the reasons GitHub's so great is everybody has an account and everybody knows that everyone else has an account. And because you know everybody has an account, you can easily share things, you can easily know that they can comment and, and get involved in your project. But runtimes and computing aren't really like that, right? Like not everybody has an account on every cloud. Right. Every cloud that you want to log into requires a credit card and requires you to sort of get consent and commit to like using their frameworks. And so We've never really been able to just be like, yo, Ned, here's a really cool new database that I saw. Click this button and launch it in a safe place. And so the closest thing I could do was give you a Docker container and you would run it locally. And be like, here's, here this is, try and run this Docker container locally. But that really doesn't work if you want to publish an endpoint. It really doesn't work if you want to run you know, multiple services that are relatively complex. Yeah. And so with Acorn Cloud, we created this big free sandbox that everybody can have an account. It's free. You just need a GitHub account, no credit card, nothing else. You come in and as soon as you go to the platform, you can launch an acorn and you can create acorns you can launch acorns are are basically docker compose on steroids so they're a way of describing your application and the services it connect to you can nest them you can build images then and push those images and once you have an image you can create a acorn slash run link and pass it to anyone else and even if they don't have an account it'll just ask them to authorize it in github and then they can deploy that same thing. So if you just do a, you know, you go to our website and you can click in our library and find interesting objects to deploy. But the real cool thing is you can nest these in your GitHub repos. You can put them on your YouTube links. You can drop them in the example to this podcast and say, oh, here's an example. Click this link and you can launch your first Acorn and see what that experience is like. And once you have that free account, you're able to share, you're able to invite people in so they can look at what you're doing. It's very much meant to be a collaborative cloud experience. And that 
we're really excited about. That's really fascinating. The idea that you know a developer could be working on a new project, they want to show that project, let other people kick the tires, instead of having all this friction of having to download the bits yourself or and spin it up locally, I can just click a link and try that software out, see what I think, provide feedback right away. I think, you know, you said that innovation might be slowing down. Well, here's a way to maybe accelerate it a little bit is this sharing of different experiments and leveraging Acorn Cloud to try them out. Yeah, I mean, we, we were trying to figure out how to kind of do this ourselves at Rancher. We were constantly trying to get people to deploy Rancher, right? And the Rancher management server is a relatively complex piece of software. And you could do Docker run Rancher and locally kind of bring up a management server, but it wasn't super helpful because you're trying to run a cloud platform, right? So, right. so actually, we were thinking, always wanted to have people be able to click a button and just launch the management server and, and start attaching nodes to it and see what it's like to build a cloud, build a Kubernetes environment. So yeah, we're trying that out. Uh, give it a try if you want to just play with something. There's everything from Minecraft images up there to all sorts of CMSs <laughs> to databases to sample language apps and other things. There's always Minecraft, it seems like. <laughs> so if folks want to give it a try, what's the address that they should be going to? Just go to acorn.io and you can sign up. All right, awesome. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Yeah, Ned, it was great being here. Thanks so much for having us. You bet. Acorn Labs is certainly one way to build a platform. F5 is also trying to help engineering teams with a distributed Kubernetes offering. I sat down with Boo Lam, a community evangelist for F5 Dev Central, to talk about their distributed cloud services and the importance of building supportive communities. Joining me now for the Day 2 Cloud Cube Conversations is Boo Lam. He's a community evangelist at F5, and he's here to talk about networking and platform engineering and some cool stuff that they've released during the conference. Boo, welcome to the show. Can you first give the audience a little background on what you do at F5? I would like to say that uh, I spend my days just listening to packet pushers, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if my boss would like that. So. Like and subscribe, like and subscribe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I am a long-time listener, so first of all, I'll just say honor to be on here. I've been listening for a long time. Fantastic that I can be in community now and kind of bring like everything that I learned from packet pushers as far as like community building and what that meant to me out to our community as well. That's great that you're giving back and like building a strong community is super important, especially when you're early on in your career and you're trying to learn the ins and outs and you may not have a vibrant community right near you. The fact that you can now reach out through time and space and connect with other folks, it's kind of nice. Totally. And so getting into, you know, what I do now, it's, it's community building and it happens in different ways. I work on a team called the F5 Dev Central team. Mm -hmm. We actually just hit our 20 year anniversary, been around for a long time at wow. this point. <laughs> I guess that's been around longer than packet pushers, uh, potentially. We build community. We do it in different ways. We have our message forums, which has been core to our community uh, all along. And originally we... At F5, we have this platform called the Big IP. It has a programming language to it. And people needed a spot to be able to find other people that are doing the same thing. And that's what community meant to them um, at that point. Community for us has really expanded beyond that to the point where we're just educating people on basic topics, or there might be instances where we need to bring in SMEs for very specific topics as well, and we'll chat with them, or they're going to be writing articles, doing videos. But it's a pleasure to be able to run into people at conferences and say, hey, we're kind of known for these lightboard lessons, or what I do now is called a brightboard lesson, just a different take on it. And, you know, people get the idea that, hey, you're, you're writing on this board and, and showing a topic on there. But I actually get people at conferences coming up to me and saying, hey, you know what, uh, I was studying 
studying for an interview at F5, and I was actually watching your <laughs> Lightboard lessons to study up on the stuff. So it's really cool to be able to see people bringing their knowledge up through community. So that's been a uh, community to me has been bringing up other people. That's awesome. That was a great message. And thank you for all your hard work in the community. I'm sure it's appreciated by a lot of people. So speaking of topics, one of the emerging themes of the conference has been platform engineering. It's kind of a hot button issue. Where do you see platform engineering? Like, how would you define it? How do you think of it when you hear the term? I think people are really starting to see the platform as where everybody comes together and it needs to be a service for others. And so I feel like we went through this point of people building up tooling in order to deliver application workloads and whatnot. And it was really centered around very point use cases. I started to see it with maybe platforms like OpenShift when they started to come around and they really were like thinking about how are we going to serve the developer and we need to think about them first. And all of those little things that we have to tweak, we really need to clean that up. It's It shouldn't be what they're going in and, and seeing. That should be all taken care of by potentially a platform engineering team who's got that buttoned up and they're just delivering a service out. So I think of platform engineering like that, like, hey, we're going to deliver an overall service. It's a platform, but you're going to this platform to get services from us without really thinking about how to put it together yourself. Right. That's a really good point. And I, I agree. That's kind of how I think of it is you're going to have a team dedicated to building that experience and building the tooling behind it to support that experience. But the actual consumers of that experience shouldn't really see the seams if you can help it. They shouldn't have to get down into the infrastructure layer. To a certain degree, I think of infrastructure as the part that the application dev should not have to care about. And so that infrastructure is what snaps into the platform side of things and supports what they want to do without letting them do anything that they really shouldn't be doing. You know, yesterday we had somebody come by the booth on the expo floor and we were just talking about his role and if it had anything to do with the things that we do at Nginx. And he was saying, you know what? We're a team of, I think, a dozen people, and we just hired our platform engineer. And now I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. And that was like, <laughs> you know, stuck out of my head is like, yeah, he was happy to hand that off and go back to developing the application. Somebody else can worry about getting the services for him. Right. One of the other uh, people I talked to, Miles from HashiCorp, said, you're doing platform engineering whether you want to or not. If you're deploying applications, then you're doing platform engineering. What the big push is now is to have a defined team that takes on that role. So that guy you're talking about is no longer responsible for that. He can focus on the things that are important to him from a development standpoint, maybe learning a new language, parsing a new library, improving an application for customers. Doesn't have to worry about the platform side because that's now somebody else's actual job. Right. Separation of duties. Has that come up uh, a little bit here? <laughs> a little bit here. Yeah. It, the joke is that it's just platform engineers are just renamed SREs, which are renamed sysadmins. Yeah. yeah. So we're all just sysadmins at the end of the day. And I think that like it's funny to say, but there's more to it than that. I don't think it's just rebadged SREs. I think SRE is still a role that needs to exist. Platform engineering probably isn't a title. It's maybe a practice. It's maybe a team of folks, maybe a set of processes, but it's not going to be an individual who's your platform engineer necessarily. In the same way that we always said there was no such thing as a DevOps engineer, there were engineers that were practicing DevOps, but then, you know, because hiring is what it is, titles started including DevOps engineer in it. So 
right that happened <laughs> right like i think of a, me having more of a networking background although that kind of changes as i move through my career but network engineers who apply devops practices so they're not a devops engineer they're a network engineer still and they just do devops in in what they do day to day and so for folks who are non-technical i try to clear that up with them saying that's not a DevOps person. That's a network engineer. They put their DevOps half for a second. They, they worked out some stuff, but they're still a network engineer. Right. In the same way that you're not a, like a bash engineer or a CLI engineer. Yes, you use that thing. That, that's how you get stuff done. But, you know, I'm not an Excel engineer either, you know? Totally. <laughs> Though I try to Excel as an engineer. Totally. I think once you can do a pivot table, I would call you an engineer at that point. I'm not an engineer. Oh, I don't understand pivot tables. I, they're magic to me. They, seriously, that, that's true magic. Yeah. Forget SD-WAN and Kubernetes and all that. The pivot table is the true magic. Totally. That <laughs> should be a job interview question. <laughs> so what's going on over at F5 in terms of helping to build out a platform? This has been an interesting journey for F5, I would say. Uh, it started off a while ago when we got into services, actually and thinking about outcomes. I would actually roll it straight back to, I guess you could say on the big IP end of things, we called ourselves a platform in terms of offering lots of services on there and having an architecture where we can work with other vendors out there and being able to say, hey, we can integrate with your VMware or we can deliver your Citrix applications or whatnot. We kind of thought of ourselves as a platform at that point because we could do a lot of stuff. But really, I think it really got to the point where we accelerated that when we started offering DDoS services. Mm. And so on a big IP, you can mitigate DDoS attacks up to a point. Your big IP will handle a lot, but your pipe will fill up before it ever overloads it. Eventually, if you only have so much bandwidth coming into the F5, you won't overtax the processor before you run out of bandwidth. Totally. We actually acquired a DDoS mitigation service at that point. And then I think that really got F5's mind into thinking, okay, we're offering a service now. We're offering an outcome at this point. We call it DDoS, but we're essentially we're offering the uh, company to stay up. Mm -hmm. Now we started adding to that. So we started to add uh, web application firewall service to that, DNS services to that as well. And that was going great. And then um, you know, we also still noticed microservices, modern application development, and also zero trust and SD-WAN services as well. We made this really strategic acquisition of a company called Volterra. And this is the basis of F5 Distributed Cloud at this point. Hmm. And how I explain it to people is just you take what F5 has done over the years. People know us for load balancing. I would say most people actually know us for security these days because web application firewall is what a lot of the use cases are with Big IP, authentication services, all sorts of things that you can do with Big IP. We took a whole bunch of those services and we now offer them as a service on a distributed cloud platform. But what's really neat about this is that you can take an image, a downloadable image from us, and you can deploy that into public cloud. You can deploy that on-prem if you want to. There's a VM image or a KVM image or a Zen image, and then you can, as soon as that image comes up, it automatically calls home, it establishes redundant VPN links back home, and all of a sudden you have connectivity, and then you have a platform. Let's hold on that word for a sec. But you have a <laughs> compute that you can actually deploy Kubernetes workloads onto, 
And then the whole idea where we wrap in, hey, we can do F5 things here, is that now, uh, you know, the concept of a virtual server previously, now we have listeners in that platform as well that you can apply services to for security as well. So now we have Kubernetes workloads running with complete connectivity. We call this uh, secure multi-cloud networking. We have complete connectivity across public cloud, on-prem, into our own network with our regional edges. So we can run workloads and security on the regional edges as well, like the core hmm. of our cloud. And all the web app firewall services, all with consistent policy and visibility. I think it's what everybody wanted to build with their big IPs. You would have had to build it yourself, but now this is the platform. Now we can say, okay, you're getting these outcomes from us. Uh, you can architect with us and it's a complete platform as opposed to buying a whole bunch of big IPs and piecing this together yourself. I'm sure your sales rep would love you to buy a whole bunch of big IPs, but <laughs> you can just subscribe to the platform now instead. Interesting. So to drill down into some of the components here, you mentioned Kubernetes. Is that because the VM itself is running Kubernetes or would it snap into an existing cluster to augment it? So it is running on Kubernetes. So this is actually a really large Kubernetes cluster. I think at the time, we, they were saying that this is, I shouldn't go there and, and quoting all these things, but it was a very large Kubernetes cluster. Okay. What they solved was, if you're familiar with Kubernetes architecture, uh, etcd, where all the config uh, is stored, they have the ability to be able to scale out etcd and to be able to have uh, globally distributed etcd so that all of these clusters are actually in sync with each other as far as okay. configurability goes. The founder of the company, I believe, wrote a Medium article on that. So I might pop that over to you in case you want to include it. They wrote this article on how they scaled etcd out. So we have this huge scalable and the platform itself runs on top of our own platform, I guess. So it's a bit of inception there. <laughs> and you can also grab kubeconfig files and insert them into distributed cloud platform and start running other Kubernetes clusters as well. So you have like this Uber Kubernetes platform running everything with multi-cloud networking and with security on top of it. Like it's, it's this crazy platform. Right now, we're really focused on getting people connected with the uh, customer edges. So we deploy that out into on-prem public cloud so we have that connectivity and add that security piece to it. But I think people are gonna start to realize, okay, we have that connectivity and maybe they're using it as their SD-WAN and they have connectivity into workloads that might be running outside of this, like just in VMs elsewhere or in their public cloud workload instances. But uh, once they start running their workloads in the Kubernetes cluster as well, like the whole thing is completely managed by this platform at that point. I think it's really cool. That is really cool. And I, I feel like I'm having a little difficulty conceptualizing it at the moment. I think maybe watching one of your Brightboard videos. Totally. <laughs> I have a Brightboard lesson on it. Yes, uh, that, that might be best served by a, a visual medium as opposed to an audio one. Now, beyond just Kubernetes, because not all applications are running in Kubernetes today, does this service allow you to incorporate other things that live outside of the Kubernetes cluster and may protect and secure them? Absolutely. Like once you have that connectivity, it's basically like a router at that point as well. So you just load in what your local subnets are uh, over on that range and you start building out your routing table and say, you know, if you want to find 
these IPs go over here. Okay. So, and you still have that security at that point. Like it still has to go through that security checkpoint at that point. So you can apply your policies there, have that consistency. You can still front with a listener with SSL TLS certs on there. So you can do that decryption and have that visibility uh, and be able to do layer seven security services for there. And the whole thing is wrapped with anti-DDoS and anti-bot services as well. So okay. the whole platform's protected. Well, if folks want to know more, they want to take it for a test drive, where's the best place for them to go? Well, I'll plug f5.com slash cloud, and I'll also plug community.f5.com because that's where you'd find me personally um, <laughs> and, and be able to find our breakboards and, and stuff like that as well on this particular subject especially. All right. Awesome. Bulan, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. Look forward to having you on again. Until next time, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks, man. You too. Last up is Fabad Khalik. He's part of the newly emerged company, Check. They're doing something really cool with flagging misconfigurations and improving upgrades in the world of Kubernetes. And their approach is something that at first is difficult to understand, but then becomes so obvious that I can't believe no one else has done it before. It's pretty exciting stuff. Joining me now on Day 2 Cloud Cube Conversations, Baba Khalik, the co-founder and CTO of Check, to talk about platform engineering and managing Kubernetes, along with the news that they've emerged from stealth. Ooh, that sounds interesting. So, Fabad, welcome to the show. Can you first give the audience a little bit of background around Check, because they probably haven't heard of you before. Thanks for having me here. At Check, we reduce operational risks. We help prevent risks, errors, disruptions, outages, downtime from happening altogether by learning from others. So if there's any user in the world which has seen failure, error, disruption, we learn about it, we convert it into a signature, just like a, a CVE or a virus signature. We stream it to all of our users, we scan and detect in their infra, and we help them mitigate and remediate those. I don't think I've heard of that approach before. The mental model is how in the world of security you have these CVEs or in healthcare where you share learnings or in the airline industry where you share learnings, that is not done for availability in the ops. Right. And we do that. We become that trusted broker. So many questions immediately jump to mind. But first, one of the prevailing themes that I've been hearing at the conference is that of platform engineering. So I wanted to get your take on platform engineering and then see how Check fits into that general philosophy or operations or whatever you want to call platform engineering. Platform engineering, what we're seeing in companies where they have multiple teams as an application team, there is probably a developer experience team and there's a platform team. They go and build these platform layers, which could be all the way from Kubernetes clusters and add-ons on top from open source vendors and cloud providers. Mm -hmm. And then they build templates and interfaces or, or maybe IDPs to enable these you know, tens of application teams internally. It's still, I think, the, the movement towards platform makes a lot of sense. It's still early. We are seeing companies coming and sharing their learnings, how they have been building those, like all the way from back two years ago where I saw some companies in, in different parts of the world and here as well, when they speak to us, I'm building this platform internally, and then they, they were sort of repeating uh, the same uh, approaches. Uh, that was great to see. And then they started coming to these you know, conferences and talk about how uh, we build that, how uh, we ended up uh, you know, learning from those platform layer approach. At the same time, there are a lot of customers and companies where the platform layer uh, is not clearly defined, mm -hmm. uh, and they are moving towards that because it allows them to bring in automation, best practices, clean architecture, homogenous approach to uh, you know, operations and maintenance and upgrades. 
Otherwise, it becomes a wild, wild west and becomes really hard to manage the whole layer. Right. And I imagine for a lot of platform teams, a key component of their platform is going to be Kubernetes. Correct. So you mentioned earlier how what Check is doing is looking for faults that have happened in other clusters and then searching for similar signatures in existing clusters. So everybody likes to think that their cluster is unique and a snowflake and they have these unique requirements and whatnot. How do you mesh that belief that they're a unique snowflake with creating these signatures that can be broadly tested for across clusters? You and I share 99% of the same DNA and that 1% makes us different. Right. Across this entire industry, what we see is that most clusters are similar in terms of the lower layers. When I say similar, it means they would be running with the Kubernetes version from 121 to 127. They will be fall in this range. On, on the layer on top, if they talk about add-ons, there are two thousands of those. But we would see a subset of clusters of those running on those Kubernetes clusters. And then on top of that, their own you know, bespoke applications. Right. So there's a lot of similarity. And then there's 10 to 20% uniqueness. Mm-hmm. We tackle both. Okay. Well, let's start with the commonality, the common features. How are you approaching and tackling that? What signifies a failure that you would capture? And then how do you analyze another cluster to look for that signature? So interestingly, our source for these signatures are not clusters. Okay. Our technology is called collective learning, and there are two key components there. There's a database called RSIGDB, or Availability Risk Signature Database. And the second key component is a knowledge graph. In the knowledge graph, we model every single component, add-on, its versions, its release nodes, uh, its upgrade concentrations, known defects. To build all these risks in this RSEC-DB and this knowledge graph, we go mine the internet, GitHub issues, release notes, official documentation. Oh, okay. Blogs. It's, it's all raw data. We also partner with add-on vendors, and our users report them back to us as well. All three sources turn into this raw feed, and of course we have tools and automation to scale it for us. This feeds into a mechanism where one of the tools or levers is a check research team, which is responsible for curating these risks, which are raw. They would go through a validation process, and they would create a signature out of these raw feeds and then commit them to the RSIGDB. This human in the loop is essential Mm -hmm. to make sure there are no false positives, they meet the quality bars. That was the first thing I thought of is now you're talking about culling all of this information from various sources, some of which are reputable, some of which might be a little dicey or, you know, (laughs) blog posts or blog posts, right? So bringing that information in, having that human curated touch is going to be huge. Absolutely. Okay, so now I got the database, I've got this signature. How am I checking a target environment for similar versions of that signature? Using the RSIGDB and Knowledge Graph, we will tell you what risks exist in your infra, where they are, and how to remediate them. And how we integrate into your infra is we, we have these connectors. Let's say in your cluster, you install a small cron job that runs you know, every 12 hours. It will collect some metadata, sends to check SAS, where we have these engines back with the RSIGDB, which runs scans. Okay. And we also connect with your cloud substrate. Because a lot of these risks, they go across layers. For example, you're running external DNS, and it has a memory leak only when you're using Route 53 records. Okay. So this goes across two layers. Right, yeah. And so we have to look at all these layers to figure out the detection logic for that specific signature, and only then we'll notify you that this risk exists in your cluster or your infra with this severity, and these are the steps to mitigate or remediate them. 
That's a really key element you pointed out is it's not just the Kubernetes cluster. There are some other services it's going to be using, and particularly in the cloud, you have API access or you can be granted API access to collect that information, and that's part of a larger whole to determine availability or stability of the environment. Correct. Okay, I'm building a mental model. It's starting to click for me, it's starting to make sense. So I am checking on the signature to see how stable it is. What about modeling scenarios? So let's say I'm getting ready to upgrade from 126 to 127, right? But I want to check and make sure if something about my configuration is going to trigger a fault or match one of your signatures. Can I have check model that upgrade for me? Absolutely. This is one of the biggest pain points uh, that we see in the platform teams, mm -hmm. where anytime they have to upgrade a cluster, uh, which to do it multiple times a year, and or an add-on even more frequently, right. they have to go read release notes, which is all text. Yeah, They have to figure out, in, and these are pages and pages of release notes, <laughs> then they have to figure out uh, what is relevant for them, uh, what is changing. They look at their own config, their own infrared, they do the correlation. It's all done manually. Then they internally create like a Google Doc version, which is called Upgrade Plan. They go through a review process uh, with multiple team members. Mm -hmm. And after that, they will go through a, sort of a test upgrade internally. And even after that, there's still there's anxiety if it's going to work or not. <laughs> yeah. So they have, at this point, they've spent weeks and months doing this manual process. Mm -hmm. Check offloads this pre-work by bringing in the knowledge graph, where we will tell you when you're about to do an upgrade, what are your current versions config, your current state? What is the recommended state? So let's say you're running Cert Manager 1.9 version, and you're moving to 125 Kubernetes version. The recommended version is 111 or maybe 112, because 1.9 is not compatible with 125. If I hadn't read the release notes carefully enough, I might have missed that. Exactly. And you're just not reading release notes for one layer. You have to read it for these tens of add-ons that you're running on top, which have their own release cycle, own dependencies, own release notes. Okay. When you say add-ons, my mind goes to two different kinds of add-ons. There's the operators I've installed to help me with my cluster, but then there's add-ons just like the network underlay. If I'm running Calico or something like that. So when you say add-ons, are you referring to both components? The definition of add-on in the context of check is anything that is you're running from open source, from a vendor or from a cloud provider that is bolted on top of your clusters is what we call an add-on. If you have an application or a custom operator that no one else in the world other than your team knows about, we call that an application. Okay. Because that's where the collective learning kicks in, where it's shared. Even if it's a project with a few GitHub stars, we will still call it an add-on. Okay. That's an important point of delineation. And also, you know, if I'm running my applications, I'm the one responsible for those applications that are running on top of the cluster, but you're helping me with the availability and the stability of the cluster that's supporting my applications. Okay. That'll make sense to me. What other aspects are you looking at or can you assist with when it comes to managing my cluster long-term, uh, improving stability and availability? I think we, we've hit on a few, but I'm guessing there might be a little bit more to it. Definitely. There are three you know, key pain points uh, in this ecosystem. First one is, you know, it's, it's a fractured and complex ecosystem. There are thousands of projects out there. A typical cluster would be running 20 to 30 add-ons uh, or applications even more. Uh, they have their own release cycle, upgrades are error-prone, and then the teams have to become experts on each of those areas. The second one is you have to train the engineers on the team to become experts in each of those components, and that's very costly because that means if your infra is scaling from uh, let's say 50 clusters to 500 next day, 
you most likely have to hire more people. It becomes, you know, sort of more of a challenge. You have to bring new people in, you have to train them. It becomes a cost issue and it also becomes a training issue where there are limited folks out there in the world who are, you know, experts in these technologies. The third one is the world today is all based on reactive troubleshooting. If there's a failure, you have Datadog or Prometheus or any other tool, you see a failure, you go troubleshoot it, and then you go figure out the root cause, and internally, then you see why it failed, the root cause is there, how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? There's no way for you to learn about a known failure which has materialized already. And that's where we bring in the proactive loop in this existing reactive troubleshooting. Both are essential. It's a very interesting approach because you don't see that. Typically, what you see is even if there's failures with, say, an operating system or something, that will be reported up to the OS vendor, and then that OS vendor will eventually issue a patch for it. But everybody else who's running that version of the OS, they, they might not know that that issue is there. It would be really nice if proactively the OS reached out and be like, hey, there's this problem. I'm just going to show you what the mitigation is for now. And so what you're talking about is that sort of proactive mitigation of issues once it's seen within the wild. Absolutely. The only question I would have beyond that, well, I'm more questions, obviously, but the one that jumps out to me immediately is the idea of collective learning, gathering all this information. There's obviously a concern there that some of that information might be proprietary or sensitive in some way. So how are you going about collecting information about people's clusters without infringing on any of that potentially sensitive information? We do not learn from existing customers or clusters. Okay. The only three sources are these public add-on vendors and users voluntarily reporting them back to us. Oh, okay. We do not look at your failures and automatically assume it's, it's something can turn into signature. That's something we don't do. That's the boundary. <laughs> okay. Okay. That is... The perfect answer, and I love to hear that. People can volunteer information, but you're not just reaching out and collecting. I know there's some networking companies, I'm not going to name any names, but the switch is on by default that they're collecting all your telemetry and using it for their AI training or whatever, and you're not doing that. We don't do that. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's awesome. Well, if folks want to check out more, what's the right place for them to go to learn more about Check and what you do? You go to our website, chkk.io, check.io. We have uh, you know, the product modules there. We are all technologists. We have a technology page. We, we talk about collective learning, what RSIGDB is, how Knowledge Graph works. We also have a blog where we go and, you know, talk about, uh, you know, what we are building, the problems we are solving. Uh, so subscribe to our newsletter as well. Uh, you can reach out to us on you know, LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Okay, fantastic. Well, Fadad, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Hopefully you get some lunch. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you bet. That will do it for our platform engineering-focused Cube Conversations. This is the first time Day2 Cloud has done something like this, so more than ever, I would love to hear your feedback. You can ping us on LinkedIn, you can fill out the contact form on day2cloud.io, or you can even join the Slack Packet Pushers at packetpushers.com slack. Stay tuned for the security-focused Cube Conversations episodes that will be dropping shortly. I talked to some truly amazing people from the likes of Tigera, Uptix, and Venify. Thanks to our guests for appearing on Day 2 Cloud and virtual high fives to you, awesome human being, for tuning in. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.